0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, Price and Coverage Match Limited by State Law.
1: Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. Today's show will be Can Chemicals in Food in Our Environment Affect Fertility? I think you're going to find this to be a really interesting show if you are trying to conceive or if you are pregnant, or really, quite frankly, even if you're a parent. I think that this is something we all need to consider um, for our children's both health as well as their future fertility. Here's just a sample of what you're going to hear.
2: There is some data from the government um from between 1980 and 2002 that show that women report greater difficulty in conceiving and maintaining pregnancy between – there's been an increase between 1982 and 2002. And so that would suggest that – that raises our concern about, well, what is it that might be contributing to these increases in in things Mm -hmm. um, such
1: as your difficulty in conceiving and maintaining pregnancy? I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Organization, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We'd love to have you subscribe to our show. It's the easiest way to be notified of each uh, episode. You can do that either by going to iTunes uh, or whatever the uh, mechanism you're using to listen to the show right now has a subscribe button. Or you could just go to the radio uh, show page of our site, creatingafamily.org, slash radioshow, and be able to subscribe then. The Creating a Family radio show, we are proud to say, is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For many patients, cost is and can be a barrier to pursuing fertility treatment. That's why Faring offers a savings card for their endometrin vaginal inserts. The instant savings card offers up to $100 savings each month on your endometrin prescription for eligible patients. You'll need to ask your doctor for more details and get better information. Just a reminder for everyone, we do send out a newsletter, an e-newsletter, twice weekly, and we would love to have you join us. That is where we let you know about the uh, new resources that we're adding to the site, and we do add four new resources every week and sometimes more, but at a minimum four. Um, We also tell you about the upcoming week's blog and show topic, uh, and just also anything that's happening in the world uh, of uh, infertility or adoption. You can sign up for our e-newsletter on any page of our website, top right side. This show, as as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors. And I just want to remind you that these are people who believe in our mission of providing you unbiased education and support. Uh, and and so we ask that, um, I think that means something about the people who are, are sponsoring us. They care about patients and they care about supporting and educating the patient community. Um, some of our gold sponsors are Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility, and they have seven offices in New Jersey. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. He is a South Carolina firm committed to assisted reproductive law and adoption. We also have Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. We also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an infertility service provider, consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, just a whole host of criteria that we think are important when choosing. And by using these databases or these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. As I mentioned, today's show is going to be about how chemicals and environmental toxins and exposures can affect fertility and uh, pregnancy, uh, increase miscarriage rates, uh, and general health. This show is a re-airing of one of my favorite shows. As you're going to see from the interview, this is a subject that is very uh, near and dear to my heart. It's, it's uh, something that I'm really fascinated by, and I thought our guest was particularly good. Um, so without ado, let me bring you this show. Welcome, Dr. Woodruff, to Creating a Family. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, now, we've known for a long time, or most of us have, that some occupational exposure to chemicals, radiation, and such can affect fertility. But what many people don't realize is that we can and are being exposed to strong, potentially fertility-altering chemicals in our everyday life. And then there's a host of things we need to talk about, but let's start with food. Are there specific foods, or maybe, maybe I'm really asking more specifically, are there pesticides and herbicides that are used on foods, Um, that can affect either fertility, both male or female, or can cause a woman to have trouble carrying a pregnancy to term?
2: Yeah, well, that's a really good question, because one of the things we're really very interested here at UCSF, and actually the public in general, is what about all these chemicals that we have in our environment, including the things that are on our food? So you mentioned things like pesticides and herbicides that are used on food. They're used on food crops or in other types of places, and you can be exposed to some of these chemicals through eating or through even people who are using uh, pesticides or herbicides in their home. I think one of the challenges about trying to sort out, well, if I – what's going on when I eat food, and there's pesticides, herbicides on there, from all the other types of exposures that we have in our daily lives is that there's many different types of chemicals in our everyday lives in terms of things that we're exposed to. So, for example, you mentioned pesticides and herbicides on food. And then we'll be talking a little bit later about what about the chemicals in my um, personal care products or the things right. in my household cleaners. There's many different types of things. So this is a long way of saying... Trying to pinpoint exactly what's being, um, what the contribution of pesticides and herbicides is to potential infertility problems is very challenging. Um, That being said, I will first let me preface this by saying if you're concerned about something like pesticides or herbicides in your food, there are scientific studies that show that if you switch to an organic diet, you can lower the levels of certain types of pesticides in your body. So, for example, there was a study that was done up at the University of Washington where they had a group of children, and they put them on just a regular diet whatever they were eating, Then they switched them to a completely organic diet, and then they switched them back to a regular diet. And what they did was they measured in their urine a certain type of pesticide called organophosphate pesticides. And they looked and they said, okay, they had the children um, pee in a cup when they were on the regular diet, do it again when they are on the organic diet, and then do it again when they went back on the regular diet. And they found that by switching to the organic diet, the levels of this particular type of pesticide went down um, greatly when they went on to the organic diet. Which meant that you can actually have you
1: can do something in your personal life to reduce your exposures to certain types of pesticides. Well, speaking so a lot of organic, is, let me interrupt here because speaking of organic, yeah. one of the issues is cost. Quite frankly, oh and yes, I, I mean that's
2: definitely it, true.
1: I mean, it's, it's the reality. And and it seems to me, especially like when I look at things like an avocado or a banana, and I think, yep. I'm going to peel the thing anyway. So, I mean, really, what are the odds of, of the the pesticides getting through the skin to the uh, to the product? Or I suppose oranges would be another example of that, of a very thick skin, something that you're obviously not going yep. to be eating the skin. So are all organic products equal as far as their, uh, well, maybe the, the better way to say it is if you had to select, <laughs> Certain uh, certain produce to be eating organic. Are there some? Is there some produce that's better than others that, or worse than others? if so you would want to be getting uh, or uh, buying organic.
2: Yeah, that's an excellent point. And we realize people tell us all the time. You know, it's it's really expensive to buy some of these foods organic. So if you have, you know, if there's, um, you have to make choices about that. Then what you are raising is an excellent uh, suggestion. Is that essentially there are some fruits and vegetables that are going to have more. Um, pesticides on them than others and one one basic rule of thumb is do i have to peel it or not like you're saying you have to peel it probably something like a banana or a vo- avocado it's going to have less if you eat it than something like for example we recommend other uh, certain ones and we have a available information available on our website and our other websites that have this too that have more uh, pesticides and herbicides in them things such as strawberries Um, is a great example, peaches, fruits, et cetera, that um, you might choose those if you're only going to choose certain ones organic. I would also say that another thing that has been shown to be reasonably effective is to wash your fruits and vegetables. So if you wash them, and we also um, have something about this on our website, you can wash them either in water or with a very, very mild detergent, and that can also help remove some of that.
1: Some of them, it's very
2: difficult.
1: Oh, go ahead. no, No, how do you... Okay, so if you were... Uh, one of the things that I'm paranoid about is grapes because I've always thought that they had, and I try not to buy grapes unless they're mm-hmm. U.S. grown, but, you know, it's still it's not easy. And, and quite frankly, I can't find organic strawberries, organic peaches, or or organic grapes. Uh, I don't live in a place where there's a big, or, you know, uh, health food type store. So uh-huh. I, and that, those are not options for me. But I don't know how to wash uh that it, let's say strawberries, uh, or peaches, or grapes, or yeah. celery. How do you wash them in a way? Because I feel like just running water over it. You know, how effective is that?
2: Well, I mean, there's degrees of effectiveness. So one thing is there's just buying it from the store, which is you know that's the first um, thing that you do. I mean, there's running water over it, which probably somewhat helpful, and then. There are some recommendations that people have about you can use a very mild uh, soap to kind of wash them off. I, it's not, you know, it's going to vary depending on the kinds of fruits or vegetables. A strawberry is going to be much more challenging because it gets inside than something like a banana or an orange. So I think what this just raises the issue that you're speaking about is a lot of these are personal deci- things that are left on to us to try and mm-hmm. figure this out or sort through this or for your example, you don't even have access to organic food in
1: your grocery store. No, I so do, then you just, have to, not, just not those uh, specific not uh, those ones. Not those particular
2: ones. So you have to ask the question, well, wait a minute, why is it that when I go to the grocery store, I am forced to buy something that I you know, am potentially worried about? Like why is it that we can't have... In strawberries, et cetera, or other products in our home that we know are mm-hmm. going to be essentially safe for our consumption. So I think there's, it's not just about what choices we make, but also how is the larger system set up.
1: Right. Okay. Now, what about meats? Uh, uh, oh. let, let's talk first meats. I mean, that's been in the news yeah. as of late.
2: Right. So I actually so was going to raise this other point: is that I mean, uh, fruit. Well, there's a couple things. Generally, the recommendations that um, are made uh, throughout the government about how to improve your diet, so eat more fresh fruits and vegetables, eat lower on the food chain, those types of things also have the dual benefit of you possibly can lower your exposures to environmental chemicals. So when you raise the issue about meats, one of the things um, that is uh, a place that you can get exposed to different types of environmental chemicals is through eating meat or fatty foods. Um, And this is because there are a host or a group of chemicals, which we call persistent and bioaccumulative. What does that mean? These are chemicals that have, because of their structure, once they're released out into the environment, they just hang around and hang around for many, many years. And what ends up is they can go out into the environment, get into the food supply, and then they can basically magnify up the food supply. So if they get into Um, you know, the things that cows are eating and then they concentrate in the cows and then some of them also, the other feature of some of these chemicals is that they love fat. So they they Mm -hmm. often will go into a cow, go into the fat part, and so if you eat a lot of fatty meats, you can get a higher exposure to some of these types of chemicals. And people have heard of some of these. This would be um, things like DDT and DDE. Now that's a pesticide that was used many years ago, was banned in the United States in the 1960s, but we still see it when we measure it. We still see it in people today when we go out and measure it through what is called biomonitoring studies. PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls, also banned in the 60s and 70s, also is something that hangs around. We see that a lot less, but we still see it in people.
1: Um, but so, and, and other countries have not necessarily banned it. And I, was, I, I don't know why this surprised me, but uh, I was shopping with a friend, at uh-huh. uh, a, one of those mega uh, stores, and, they're, and she was buying some meats, and they were from uh-huh. Mexico. And I thought, well, I wonder if – I don't know that Mexico particularly has, but I, I really hadn't really thought of us as being an importer of meats, but apparently, especially yeah. in the lower super lower price, the super Walmart, that type places, um, at least there were some meats there that were from Mexico, so it's possible that some of the chemicals that we have banned – I don't know if Mexico has also banned them, or other countries, not just or Mexico. Or other countries.
2: Right. I mean, that raises a very interesting point because I was um, – did you read the story in the paper a couple of days ago about the arsenic in the rice
1: products? So I missed that somehow. <laughs> Tell yeah. me about it. Something well, else to worry uh, about. Yeah. <laughs> so –
2: um, there are some researchers at Dartmouth who have been looking at arsenic in rice products, whether it's rice itself or, you know, when you make uh, rice syrup and it's used in different kinds of... Uh, oh, I brownies. did hear about
1: that. Yes, it was in the rice syrup that's used as a sweetener, yes.
2: Yes, and so one of the things was, well, there's a couple places that you can get arsenic into into your rice. One is there are natural occurring sources of arsenic, right, in, in certain parts of the country. it It comes out into the water. But there are places also that used to use arsenical pesticides on, for example, cotton crops, and then they convert the land to rice, and then when you grow the rice, you can the rice can um, um, absorb the old arsenical pesticide. But one of the questions I've heard discussed among scientists is, what about rice that's coming from China? Are they using these arsenical pesticides there? And then when we buy imported food from places like China, or your example is Mexico, are we also importing basically the, the you know the chemicals that they're using, which have have not possibly been regulated by their countries? So it's a good
1: it's a good point to um, think about. So and 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 then of course we also should talk about milk products because pregnant women are well sometimes depending on who you who you read. Uh, uh, women are sometimes encouraged to drink milk and sometimes not. But um, the uh, the milk products and, and particularly milk, perhaps over cheeses, because you don't know have the sure quantity that we're we're drinking. Mm-hmm. As well as, uh, can that impact our? Is there something in the milk supply that is potentially could potentially affect our um, uh, fertility or, or or increase the risks of miscarriage or birth defects?
2: Yeah, I mean, these are tricky subjects because it's like, well, um, if you say, okay, well, your example is the milk supply, and I'm thinking, well, in milk we do have a concern possibly about some chemicals that may migrate there, for example, higher-fat milk, as we talked about, that there can be chemicals certain types of chemicals in the fat because of the the properties of the chemicals. Are there other types of um, chemicals in milk? You know, there's been studies of... um, other chemicals that potentially can get into the meat supply or into animals, and uh, one is I'm thinking of is perchlorate. Do you know what perchlorate is? no it's a it's a uh, with, it's uh, used in rocket fuel it's also been used in fireworks and other types of applications um, and it has gotten into w- the water supply. for example, it's in the Colorado River and that's used to irrigate, for example crops in California, mm-hmm. then it gets into the crops. A lot of those um, crops are used to feed animals. Then it basically gets into animals, and there's estimates that perchlorate has essentially penetrated the entire food supply and can also be found in milk. Well, and we know it's found in people because again, there are these national bio. There's a national biomonitoring study that's um, conducted by the Centers for Disease Control, where they go out and they collect samples from people in the population, like blood and urine, and then they measure them for different environmental chemicals, and perchlorate is one of these one of these chemicals that's been found in, in most of the people in the United States. And uh, the question is, well, what is the concern about this particular chemical as compared to the many of the other ones? For example, we're talking about DDT is found still in the food supply and PCBs. Uh, perchlorate is a... Is thought thought to um, be a thyroid hormone disruptor, and um, thyroid hormones are one of the hormones in your body that are essential for proper functioning of your body, but they're also really critical during development. Uh, You need to have proper thyroid hormone levels to ensure that um, you have proper brain development for your baby. So if perchlorate is interfering with thyroid hormone levels, could it be interfering with the, the developing brain of the fetus? And these are one of the th- we know that there are studies suggesting that perchlorate can interfere with thyroid hormone levels, but no one's looked to see oh, did those babies grow up and then have some type of decrements in their cognitive function? You know, for example. or in their in
1: their fertility because one of the issues right. that is is certainly being kicked about now is. It, it, there's not a lot of evidence that would indicate that perhaps infertility is increasing, but there, there are certainly some studies that are ongoing that are looking into mm-hmm. that, and, and particularly at a younger age. And we certainly know that girls are entering puberty at a younger age. Right. And one of the thoughts is that some of this could be, obviously, childhood exposure, but also interuteral exposure. Mm Hmm.
2: Uh, That's a really yes. This whole the issue about uh, fertility and what we call fecundity, your ability to conceive and maintain your pregnancy. It's true we don't really have the data we would like to have to identify whether these trends are going up or down. Though people, you know, people talk about it, right? You and you have your program, and then I'm sure people talk about it, whether the women in various places about um, whether they or their friends are having problems. There is some data from the government. Um, from between 1980 and 2002, that show that women report greater difficulty in conceiving and maintaining pregnancy. Between there's been an increase between 1982 and 2002. Um, and so that would suggest that that raises our concern about well, what is it that might be contributing to these increases in, in things mm-hmm. that, um, such as your difficulty in conceiving and maintaining pregnancy?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, and so any of these now as to either milk or mm-hmm. meat. But well, let's go. But let's just speak specifically of of milk. Um, there are uh, all grocery stores now have a variety of options of organic milks. Um, has there been any studies of these to really indicate that they are worth the worth the cost, which is about four dollars for a half a gallon, eight dollars for a gallon? Oh, that is a good question because I um I haven't actually looked into
2: milk itself. I mean I know about the fruits and vegetables, but I I am not aware that doesn't mean there aren't any, but I'm not aware of any studies looking at the difference between organic versus non organic milk. So I would say that one of the challenges is we just often in some of these areas we don't have enough data. If you yeah. ask me You'll can. You probably will ask me many questions during the show, which I'll be like, "Gosh, I that's one of the well, things that's that fair we,
1: because that points out one of the problems. I mean, we we, we yes. don't. I mean, it's one of the fears is that we have all these chemicals that surround us on an everyday right. basis, and we truly don't know the long term impact. Uh, you know, so it's a. Uh, I mean, it's a. Uh, it's fair to say we we just don't know. Uh, and the interesting thing is, you were talking about the the milk that I was thinking of. I certainly have had. I, I uh, up, you know, uh, warning up front. I do buy organic milk, and one mm-hmm. of the reasons was because of the uh, fear that there were steroids and hormones and antibiotics and junk. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm probably saying some things that are not even accurate there. Uh, but anyway, th- that are being fed to uh, cows in a mass production type environment to get them right. to overproduce. And the same would go with um, with meat. Um, and so I think that there probably, I would guess, that there have been studies that would indicate that there is an the absence of some of this in the, some of those chemicals in the milk, but that perhaps not some that would be, you know, if they irrigated the, the, the pasture area where the, uh, uh, the the cows were grazing um, it, with water that was contaminated, then it would not, obviously that might pass through, so I don't know. right. I
2: mean, it raises also this interesting, um, this other side benefit of when you buy organic, is it's not. I mean, it's it, there's a benefit. There could be a benefit to you as the consumer, but then there's a benefit to the people who work in the places where they produce the whatever the food is that you're you're um, buying. So, for example, if you buy organic fruits and vegetables, that means that people who are working in the fields, either uh, planting or harvesting. Or uh, processing those fruits and vegetables, they're not going to be exposed to uh, pesticides in their workplace. So, it has another benefit besides just your own personal benefit. It could have a benefit also to the people who are working in the food supply Mm -hmm. chain. So, we also raise your this is important, right? And raise your point about uh, well, what about these you know concentrated animal feed lots, for example, that are used to produce a lot of a lot of the meat in this country? Um, If you're buying, if the consumer is buying. Food in a way that is reducing the use of those types of things that has another benefit. That's um, that's not just the benefit to the consumer directly, but also an indirect benefit.
1: Well, and around where I live, spring has now sprung. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. just this week, I was thinking about okay, needing to go out and start getting to work in my garden and in the yard. What about now? Now, albeit one would assume that the chemicals were exposed to in our own yard would be a relatively small amount. Is there uh, is is the exposure that we would have day in in our own yards? Is that something to worry about? And if so, what would what should you do about it as somebody who's potentially going to try to get pregnant or for that matter has children and and, and wants them to be uh you right know,
2: well, you know, it's a really interesting point because I think people assume that um you know, well, pesticide exposures that's something that is happens only in the workplace, but there was a very uh, a great a good study that was published in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives a couple of years ago which looked at um people's use of pesticides. They had they did two different things. They said, "Well, let's look at women who are pregnant who um who work in uh, locations that use pesticides. But also, let's look at people who are, who, uh, uh, families, pregnant and then also small children, and, um, see what happens to, uh, them when they were just using regular pesticides in their home. And this study was very, these, this, these people actually looked across all the studies that were published, and they're very interested in the potential contribution of pesticide exposures to childhood leukemia. So, there, they were asking the question, do exposures that occur while you're pregnant or possibly in childhood contribute to childhood leukemia? And what they found was that when they looked across all the studies that had been done, um, looking at just residential use of pesticides, that there was an increased risk from, ex, uh, from use of residential use of pesticides was Mostly during pregnancy and an increased risk of leukemia in the children that were then born to these families. Now they couldn't identify exactly which pesticides had been used, but the fact that they were able to aggregate just ordinary use, whether it's in your yard or people, you know, people have their homes treated for pesticides or they use Mm -hmm. pesticides in their home, it does raise concern about the use of pesticides in your home and whether Um, it can be contributed to some types of adverse health outcomes. This was focused on childhood leukemia, but you raised the issue about miscarriages and other types of of health conditions. Our suggestion is to really limit the use of pesticides in your home. We can't know for sure, but we can know that um, there are alternatives to using pesticides that can be used, and um, that way you can you know, essentially increase your odds of having a, a, a better health outcome.
1: What about herbicides? I mean, pesticides uh, certainly will kill the the bugs, but herbicides would be weed control. What about those?
2: Um, I don't know. I'd have to go back and see if that study actually separated the use of herbicides versus pesticides. Um, I think it was you know, they were looking across many different studies and some people, that some of the questions were did you use pesticides in your home? Some people were, did you use them in your garden? Did you have someone come in and treat your home? So, I think there was some variation by the type of thing that was, the type of um, application that was used. Um, but there was concern raised about just general use. So, in general, so okay. that is a good question. Yeah,
1: I'm just, well, yeah. Um, and you might want to talk some now about the uh the, some of the studies that have shown the prevalence of chemicals in general everyday chemicals and in particular yep. pesticides in breast milk.
2: Well actually um yes, well first let me talk about the chemicals that have been that we we know about during pregnancy. Okay. So um because it it's a it's a continuum, right? We have well first of all We know from the studies that are done by the government that um, people are exposed to many different environmental chemicals all at the same time. Um, So I don't know if your listeners are familiar, but the Centers for Disease Control has been, um, they have been conducting biomonitoring studies where they measure chemicals in biological samples from people. They've been conducting them for many years, but they focused primarily on just a few chemicals, things like lead. Um, They've been measuring a few of these these persistent uh, pesticides like DDT. But it was really starting in uh, about 2000 that they increased the number of chemicals that they were measuring in people and that they started to do the survey that they conduct on an annual basis. And it's been an amazing resource of information because what they have been showing is that, like I said, people are exposed to many different types of chemicals, whether they're ones that have been banned, like the DDTs and the PCBs and um, and those kinds of chemicals, or more contemporary use chemicals, things like phthalates, uh, bisphenol A, uh, flame retardants, they find that many people have many different kinds of chemicals in their body. So we actually were very interested in this question because we said, well, what about during pregnancy? I mean, that's a time, as, as you know, when you know, there is a concern about um, what kinds of environment, whether it's, environmental exposures to chemicals or other types of things are happening during pregnancy because we know that um, exposures that occur during that time can have a more um, profound effect than if the exposures occur during other periods of your life, and that's because development is occurring. And it's a very intricate and orchestrated process, so if you interrupt it, that can have um, profound consequences. So we actually looked at this data that's collected by CDC um for 2003 and 2004, and what we found was that pregnant women in the United States they carry a burden of a, probably at least 40 different types of chemicals that we found that were measured in virtually every single woman in in uh, every pregnant woman in this particular study, or in this particular um, survey, which is a nationally representative sample of the U.S. population. Uh, so then, your question is, well. What about
1: breast milk, right? So, women well, are exposed. the point, to... though, is that we should be worrying about the exposure to the uh, fetus in utero first, and yes. then, of course, to the to the uh, probably even more so because the percentage of women who breastfeed exclusively up to six months is relatively low. So, you're right. the 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 biggest concern, I suppose, would be the intrauterine exposure, but then second, breast milk. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, what we're concerned about is that many of these chemicals they pass. Through the placenta
1: into the fetus,
2: and then the fetus is getting exposed even before it's born. So, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, what, 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 the question remains what is going to, what is the concern about that, and what is it about, um, the way that we have, um, our, basically the way we could go out and buy products and things like that in this, in the United States that influence the fact that women are exposed to many of these chemicals, some of them of which we know have a potential to increase risk of adverse health outcomes. Yeah. Uh
1: so yeah, so in general, uh, it's not just it's it's all the chemicals and it's across the spectrum but both before you get pregnant, during your pregnancy and when you are nursing your child. And if we carry it forward it would be exposure to the child even after after that fact. Yeah.
2: And I mean I think you know you raise the question, well, what can I do in my everyday life to avoid these because um It's natural that you would say, well, these are chemicals, some of them that we um, have identified are potential reproductive or developmental toxins. What do I do to avoid them? And there's things that people can do like we talked about, right? The organic diet is one way to reduce your exposures to certain types of, of chemicals. But I think one of the challenges about talking about environmental chemicals is I think people assume that when they go to the store or the market, that when they buy a product, it's already all the chemicals that are used in that product have been tested for safety prior to entry onto the marketplace. You're right. We do assume that. Right. And that's actually just not true. Um, What it turns out is that the laws in this country uh, do not require that, uh, that the chemicals that are used in the products be tested completely for the kinds of health concerns that we're talking about before they go on to the marketplace and so this is one of the things that's been raised as a concern at the um at the government level that the current law that governs how chemicals are allowed to be um, enter into the marketplace needs to be modified because it's just not adequate to keep up with the task with all these different chemicals and all the concerns we have about how they might be impacting our health it's not like um, for pharmaceuticals, so if you go and your doctor prescribes you a pharmaceutical and then you go purchase it, you know that there's a law that required that that pharmaceutical was tested for safety and efficacy prior to entry into the marketplace. It's just
1: not that way for environmental chemicals so so what organization governmental organization is in charge? of figuring out if a product is going to be sold in the United States that it doesn't contain things that might be harmful to us.
2: Yeah, so the way that that chemicals and products are are, uh, essentially uh, evaluated, regulated, is through a law called the Toxic Substances Control Act. And that's a law that was passed in 1976, and it's administered by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, um, or U.S. EPA. And U.S. EPA you probably know, is also in charge of looking at uh, air pollution. Um, they also uh, uh, collect information and regulate pesticides and herbicides um, mm-hmm. that are used, um, uh, contaminated waste sites, mm-hmm. uh, chemicals in drinking water. And um, then this, this, the Toxic Substances Control Act, and essentially how it works is that the Toxic Substances Control Act was passed in 1976 And at that time, there were a lot of chemicals that were being used in the marketplace. A lot of them had been developed post -post World War II, um, and from the you know essentially the 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 industrialization that occurred during that time. And the law said, well, we're going to just grandfather in all the chemicals that are already being used in the marketplace. We're going to allow them to just continue to be used, and we're not going to we're going to assume they're safe. We're not going to require any testing of them for how they might impact public health, unless we have reason to believe we have to go out and test them. So that's a whole group of chemicals, and some of them we're still talking about today, like phthalates or bisphenol A or some of the perfluorinated chemicals. And then any new chemical that you want to manufacture post 1976, you do have to have a little bit of, you do have to provide some information to the government about it. Um, but it really isn't as extensive testing for the kinds of health concerns that we're talking about um, that is required before you can register your chemical with the U.S. government. And then, you know, you can manufacture it if you want and put it into products and use it in the marketplace. And so that's why there's been a lot of attention recently because we're finding there's sort of things that have been happening that are raising our awareness about environmental chemicals. One is, well, we're finding them in lots of people. The other is, well, some of these chemicals that we thought were benign are actually not benign. They're actually doing things that we weren't—we either didn't look for or didn't anticipate. And something that people are really very interested in now is um, chemicals' ability to affect your hormone system. So there's a lot of science on that. And um, this
1: is which, raised. This be oh, go ahead. <clears throat> which fits directly into the whole issue of of. For- uh, the, the, the whole hormone disrupting thing fits directly yeah. into the issue of impacting potential fertility or or right. uh, the ability to carry a pregnancy, your child's uh, future fertility, uh, right. uh You know uh, all of that, and you're right. We do read a lot about so the these are it's a whole group of uh, endocrine disruptors, hormone disruptors, mm-hmm. uh, a, whole, a whole group of chemicals that um, that fall under that general heading. Yes. How are we exposed to these products? Yeah, so, these substances, these These, these chemicals.
2: substances. So, so there's this. There's a whole uh, group of chemicals who we're concerned about because they may um, impact. They can uh, perturb the hormone system. So, what hormones are things like estrogen, um, androgens, or testosterone? We talked about thyroid hormones, and there are chemicals that can do things that can mimic them. They can interfere with their production. They can essentially cause them to go up or down. And as you know, that as you mentioned, during um, uh, you're tra- trying to get pregnant, or during your pregnancy, or early in child development, your hormones are very important in terms of being able to get pregnant, having proper development during pregnancy, and then subsequent growth during childhood. And so it's like, well, where are these? What the thing is, is that many of the chemicals Many of these chemicals are found in the products you buy in your, you know, everyday in the store. So one of the chemicals, for example, that's become, uh, well, maybe it's only well known among environmental health scientists, but it's really <laughs> reasonably well known among the public, you know, poster child is uh, phthalates. So um, a phthalates are a group of chemicals. Um, the most famous, I'll say, phthalates are dibutyl phthalate and dihexylhexyl phthalate. And these are used in a, in many, well, they're used in a number of different ways, but I'll give you two things that, that we know are important uses for them. One is the use is they take hard plastic and they make it soft. So, um, think of it like an IV bag or a toy or, uh, many other types of products that might, you know, you basically, plastic comes out hard, you put these softeners in it and then it makes it kind of squishy.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, that's one thing. Flexible Another would be thing. the better word. Yeah, it makes it so can bend it. In. Flexible. It makes plastics flexible. Flexible. <laughs> Bendy. flexible. Bendy. works. I me, I'm, I'm I'm working with you here. Bendy is fine. <laughs> sorry. I just like have it's cold, so it's like fuzzing my brain a little. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Around here, uh, around here, we 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 uh, often cut right through the uh, the the, uh, the scientific BS and speak in in terms that people can actually understand. So that was good. Yeah. Go
2: ahead. Uh, that's very 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 helpful. The other thing that they 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 uh, can be used in is uh, cosmetics. So um, they can use to convey a scent. So that thing like perfume sometimes that is really a code word for for a phthalate. And um, one of the concerns about this. About some of these phthalates is that they can interfere with testosterone synthesis. What does that mean? That means uh, there's been there were studies in animals that said, well, we expose the animals to phthalates and their testosterone levels go down. That essentially, is is what the crux of some of those studies said. Well, you can imagine, during um, development, uh, particularly in utero, testosterone is very important for proper. Uh, uh, male reproductive development, meaning if you don't have enough testosterone, you can have um, problems making your know, male reproductive system, whether it's uh, internal things you can't see, but things that you can see externally, like cryptorganism or hypospadias, essentially incomplete formation of the penis or mm-hmm. undescended testicles. So this was shown in animal studies, and then there was a very um, important – well, there's been some studies in, in humans, but there was a, one very important study that looked at very subtle effects of phthalates during pregnancy on male reproductive effect, uh, uh, health. Well, you know, this raised the concern Is wait a minute. So we have these phthalates, they can interfere with testosterone, and then there was some um, non-governmental organizations who said – and some of these dyes are found in products that women use, things like deodorant, conditioner, perfume. I mean, many shampoos of shampoos
1: per- are a huge I mean, shampoos. That's a big one. If you look at if you if you look at the ingredient level on almost any sham, uh, commercial commercially sold shampoo,
2: right,
1: that has a smell. Um, and they all have, you know, all the the major name brands have significant uh, scent components, uh, and from what I can tell, they all have th- th- phthalates.
2: Yeah. So basically, back in the uh, you know in the in the early 2000s, one of the reasons that these environmental groups got interested in phthalates is because the data that was coming out from CDC, the biomonitoring data I was talking about, said, ooh, look, we found phthalates in everybody which nobody expected at the time. Nobody knew that they were going to find phthalates in people. And actually, the CDC found uh, the phthalates in people somewhat accidentally. They were actually looking for a different chemical, and they noticed that they were getting interference in their machines from something that they didn't recognize, and it turned out to be phthalates. They said, oh, look, we have phthalates in all these people across Mm -hmm. the United States. Then they looked at the data and they said, wow, this is really interesting. Some of these phthalates are higher in women of reproductive age. So the government published this data, said, oh, look, we have phthalates in everybody. Oh, and by the way, some of these phthalates we find they're higher in women of reproductive age. And then that was it. It was really the the, uh, the uh, environmental groups who said, wow, why are there some phthalates that are higher in women of reproductive age? Well, maybe it's because these women are using all these different types of personal care products. So they went out found the phthalates and the personal care products. They actually um, did a great campaign to tell people about this. And, you know, what's happened is there's a couple things that happened. One is there are many states, actually nationally there's been a ban on a couple of phthalates and baby products, but many states led the way by banning some of these phthalates and baby products. And a lot of manufacturers took out uh, one of these particular phthalates out from the personal care products, and so the environmental groups went back. I don't know. Maybe six years later to test all these products again, and they found that some of them, the DBP and the DHP, had been reduced. There are still some phthalates that are in there. The one that you're talking about, um, there's still a a one particular type of phthalate, diethyl phthalate, which people are not people do not think it's potentially as um, strong as the other two. But there's a couple things. One is we didn't know about these things until somebody discovered them, and then we don't actually know what's in our products because the government isn't actually required; it doesn't have that information necessarily to tell us. Well, you know, here's the things that are being used in all your different products. Kind of had to be discovered through detective work by groups who are outside the government, and that is uh, something that makes the public and consumers uh, concerned because wait a minute, what about all the other things nobody has studied yet? What about all those other chemicals that we don't know about? Yeah. Don't you think we should know about them?
1: Well, and another one that a lot of people are talking about is the parabens, which is P-A-R-A-B-E-N. Oh, yes, the parabens, parabens. yes. Um, how dangerous are parabens, really? They are uh, used, as a, as I know, from what I know, they're in most of our cosmetic products, makeup. Yeah. Um, it's, as I understand it, it's a preservative for the makeup. Mm-hmm. Um uh, again, when you uh, look, if you can read the label, and a lot of times they don't have the ingredients listed on cosmetics, but uh, where you can find them, it seems to me mm-hmm. that most cosmetics actually still have parabens. And so, how dangerous are they? Should we be worrying about it? Uh, parabens is a
2: great example of something where there's a it's it's murky. So, cosmetic you're required to put list all the chemicals on the cosmetics, except for there's a few loopholes, and one is the scent so if it's a chemical like dbp is used to convey a scent or perfume, then they don't have to tell you what that chemical is so that's how that's a lot of phthalates um it was difficult to identify phthalates in a lot of these products um the parabens are are-, are they're essentially l lo- have this other feature that's like the phthalates, which is we find them in almost everybody, and they're higher in women of reproductive age. I would say, though, that um, we have been looking a little bit around in the scientific literature to try and see what that very question that you're asking is, like, well, what's the kind of health effects that we have to uh, might be concerned about these? And I would say that there's just not a lot of science on these. There's some scientists who suggest that they might be endocrine disrupting chemicals but i would say that there's a lot we don't know and this is one of the this sort of gets back to the whole well why don't we know if we're exposing everybody in the united states to this chemical why can't i sit here and tell you exactly what i know about it that's because we don't require that kind of information for these chemicals before they're used in all these products so that is um sort of one of the unfortunate consequences of the weakness of the federal laws is that we essentially are putting these out in the marketplace and then
1: testing them while they're out there. Yeah, by, after the fact, exactly. Um, yeah. One of the things that occurred to me as I was, uh, last night I was getting ready for bed and was thinking about this show, and as I was thinking about it, I am lathering up with like- Because I am, uh, winter's still enough around here that it's dry, so I literally coat myself in lotion. And as I was doing that, I thought, you know, the skin is what's you know the the old thing. The skin is the largest organ of the body. We certainly know that there are medicated patches that people are putting on because actually Mm -hmm. the skin is a very effective way, at least for some chemicals, to be distributed throughout the body. And Mm -hmm. as I'm lathering my the lotion on, I, I go and start reading the ingredients. And I'm, you know, I'm horrified. I don't know anything about, it, to be honest. I, I don't know that the ingredients were particularly dangerous. It was just, but they were, they were definitely chemical names, uh, and water, and you know, other things that weren't. chemical. Yeah. But so, what about things like that? That you know, the the lotions that I mean, at least with shampoos, you're washing them and they're washing them right off. But lotions, the whole idea of putting them on is to stay on your body.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting point because I think that's one area where we have. Slightly undervalued the importance of dermal. Ex- what you're saying is, I'm getting exposed through my skin, or scientists might call that dermal exposure. And um, I think a lot of a lot of the science is focused on things that we breathe, things that we eat, right? Those those kinds of exposures, and we know a lot less about um, dermal exposures or the importance of dermal exposures to overall concentrations of chemicals in our body. And I think this came out um, in some studies on BPA. BPA is bisphenol A, which is um, used in plastics. It's also used um, to line food cans. But one of the things that's uh, been happening over the last several years is looking at other sources of BPA. So BPA is a is also a chemical that is of concern that it may uh, influence the hormone system. It's thought to be weak in terms of its estrogenic effects, possibly affect thyroid hormones, and it has been linked to a number of different reproductive health outcomes in uh, largely in animal studies. And so most people thought, oh, well, BPA, it's in, it was highly used in those hard, polycarbon, uh, h- hard polycarbonate plastic um, right. that you could mm-hmm. buy water bottles. Right. It's less used in that. Lining a can, people thought, oh, well, people just get exposed to it through through eating and drinking. But then there was a couple of studies that have been coming out over the last years that says, oh, it's also used in those carbonless paper receipts, you know, like the ATM receipt right. or receipt yeah, and the your store. And
1: your grocery store receipts. And your but, grocery services. But receipts. again, those of us who aren't uh, tellers are are not uh, cashiers. Think, okay, well, our exposure is relatively low because we're touching it infrequently. But uh, right. So so what so what in my everyday environment is giving us a massive expo or potentially giving us exposure to BPA? Um,
2: well, you know, the studies that have been coming out recently suggest. I mean, if you are working with them a lot, there was one study that suggested that people are cashiers can have higher exposures to BPA from handling the receipts. There was a very interesting study that was just published in JAMA saying where they put these students on um, soup, uh, certain types of soup, and when they ate the soup, their um, exposure to BPA went up dramatically. So that's
1: basically canned food. So they were eating canned canned soup. And Um, let me tell you, I have been trying to figure out how to avoid the – it's the cans that have the white lining, which is the – but it's impossible to find – uh, cans that don't, I mean, there, certain cans don't have it, certain yeah. cans do, and and once you know the brand you could try it, but if it's, I don't use much canned foods, but I, I do use some, and uh, it's impossible, you don't know ahead of time, number one, whether they're going to have the white lining in it. I know, I, yes, this is <laughs> this
2: makes it very challenging because, again, it's like, oh, I go to the grocery store. It's kind of like Russian. It's not Russian-related, but, you know, it's a little bit of like what am I doing because you can't really expect every single person to be an expert chemist on all the products that they have at the grocery store. You're right. You (laughs) can't. It would be great if you went there and you just didn't have to worry about that. And I just want to tell people that I've had, you know, my own personal experiences. this is it can be very overwhelming to think about this all at once. And so, what we recommend, and what I've done in my own life, is just you just start with one thing at a time. I mean, I, you know, fed my kids from the plastic water baby bottles, and you know, we had a lot of camp food, and we did all these kinds of things. Where now I know, oh well, I can, a, I know that there's things in these that I'm not really that keen on having my family exposed to, and b, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take a step at a time, and slowly over time, we've we've changed a lot of our our habits, so that we probably reduce our exposure to some chemicals. But it's, it just it takes time. And also, the other thing is, the kinds of recommendations that we give for other parts of your life about eating healthy, getting exercise, washing your hands. These all have the double, uh, sort of double dividend of also um, helping improve either improving your resistance to exposures to environmental chemicals or actually reducing your exposures. And there's a lot of chemicals in dust. So the chemicals get out. They go in the dust, and then they sit in the dust. So things like even washing your hands before you, you eat. I've seen, I saw one study at a scientific conference that people wash their hands more often, not obsessively, but <laughs> more often. We're not talking OCD here, but you're talking just, to, you know, yeah, okay. to CBDs, right, or, you know, if you clean your house. And I'm not saying that people have to be obsessively clean. But the, it, it, I just, these are things that we do anyway that can also have a double benefit,
1: so uh, let's talk about some of the specific things that, uh, that, let's say what you do or what other people who are studying this do. Mm-hmm. How much, uh, uh, are you exclusively organic? Do you um, eat only organic?
2: I would not say, we are not exclusively organic. And we also, I, I tell you another place that you can get uh, a lot of chemical exposures is from uh, buying uh, takeout or fast food. So, so chemicals are used in um, a lot of the, materials that are used, to that the food is coming. So, for example, uh, perfluorinated chemicals have been used in the waxy paper that you can get your French fries in and or in the pizza boxes or microwave popcorn. So those kinds of things, like, I still eat out, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I just do it a little less. So what do I do? We We do buy organic when we can. I go to a local farmer's market when I can. I don't do it all the time. Mm -hmm. um we buy we try and eat lower on the food chain um we what else do we do i don't microwave in plastic that's a really super easy one everyone can do that i do have plastic containers but i don't microwave in plastic um the other thing i do is i have slowly switched out a lot of the personal care so i buy shampoos that essentially people say kind of a rule of thumb is less ingredients is likely to be better. I mean, that's not always true, but that's an easy way for people to kind of try and sort through some of the things that they find in the marketplace. So, you know, I've switched out shampoos and lotions and things like that over time. But, you know, it's just I have to, integrating it into being a habit. That's kind of the way that you make changes. And, okay, I still use a broom, even though we recommend wet mop, so it's not like I do everything exactly the way we say, because you have to make your choices that are based on your own, you know, family's preferences.
1: And that you recommend wet mop over broom because the broom <laughs> will get dust, up, get, get dust in the air versus a wet mop that dampens
2: uh, yes. down we've the had, dirt. Uh, yes, we've had great debates here about whether we should recommend it because I like brooms. But, you know, not every you can't do everything, right? So, I mean, really the bottom line is what we do is we say, look, really our research is very focused on and our work is really focused on how do we show people about environmental chemicals and we get the word out so that we can take the ones out of the pro- – we can ha- have public policies to take the ones out of the products that are potentially harmful to our families so I can use my broom. That's really no, – that's not well, what it's it, about. But you know, you know is, what I'm saying? It's really yeah. about why can we not just go to the store and buy the things that are we're not going to have to worry about.
1: And as far as cleaning products – Uh, We got an email uh, from one of our listeners asking about specifically what type of cleaning products we should use. And I'm reading through her email, and I believe she means like in the house, things that we would use as people who are cleaning our houses. What should people use is what she wants to know.
2: Well, actually that was a good point that I did not bring up. One of the other things that we've done um, is – This is a very interesting one. Uh, So there are uh, chemicals that are used in cleaning products, and uh, most of the studies that have focused on concerns about cleaning products have focused on that they can contribute to respiratory-type symptoms, so asthma, aggravate asthma, things like that. It's pretty actually easy to make your own cleaning products if you want. So I have in my house a spray bottle that has half water and half vinegar and that's pretty much what we use. We also, uh, there are us and other websites recommend you can use baking soda. The advantage of these is, unlike the organic food, this is actually
1: cheaper than buying a cleaning product because it's pretty easy to buy these things. And, 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 half and your half your half water, is a, you use it as a cleanser versus a... Yeah, uh,
2: like you can use it on windows or on your counters or your bathtub or
1: whatever to clean.
2: You can also buy, I mean, there are products that are essentially like baking soda, But come in a can, if you know, because there's a convenience issue for sure with some of these things.
1: Yeah, although that's you know the uh, you you can make. I mean, I've made my. uh, I don't use uh, water vinegar, water vinegar, but I do use, uh, which is probably not improving things. Ammonia, but you know, ammonia and. uh, (laughs) uh, Are you telling me uh, my my ammonia and water uh, is is going to be going to make hair grow out of my ears or something?
2: Uh, No, I'm not going to tell you that. However, you in a Well, ventilated area. Uh, you know, I mean, again, you know, you reduce the number. It's like, okay, well, you've got the ammonia. Uh, uh, well, I, it's, it's only a
1: three product thing water. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, why? What? what do I? It, for for windows, let's see, I'm trying to remember it's water, ammonia, alcohol, either rubbing alcohol. Yeah. And I guess that's it. Now now you've got me worried. Okay. I probably No, be, no, no. <laughs>
2: I'm not saying you should worry. I mean, you have, you're sort of saying this is the kind of step where it's like, well, I took a, I'm not buying the product, I'm making my own. That's a reason we'll just don't mix things that shouldn't be mixed together. But um, Well, yeah, and, and, and
1: yeah. What about bleach? Because we do hear that bleach is yeah, bad, but on the other hand, bleach, yes. go ahead. Oh,
2: uh, what about bleach? Um, you mean in your laundry?
1: Yes. Uh-huh. Or just using in your house?
2: Well, um, some people
1: use it in their house uh the to kill yeah. germs in their kitchen I am not nearly uh organized nor paranoid enough to do that. Um but uh I do use it in and I think a lot of people probably use it in their laundry. So I suppose either way. Um but so yeah, well, let's say laundry. <laughs> And, and the reason I ask is that we that, that there was at some point uh, uh, going around Facebook that that women should not bleach any of their underwear uh, or or personal clo- clothing that would be touching their genital area because it could actually impact their fertility. Now, I, I that seemed a little far fetched to me, but is it?
2: I am not aware of any studies that suggest that bleaching your underwear will affect your fertility so i can't really answer that question yeah i mean just, it that seems it a does little speak, yeah. yeah it does speak to this issue though that people are feel a little bit like well if i can't trust the things in the store how can i trust anything
1: well you're it's, right
2: that's exactly where we're at now <laughs> and so then and that is a really not a very that's not a good situation so if we knew that when we went to the store we had more confidence in what we were buying, that might actually relieve a lot of anxiety about just products in general in our lives.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think because the problem is it does feel overwhelming for most of us. We look at it, and and it's not a healthy place to be to walk through your life thinking that you're walking through a minefield and that everything that you touch and do... And Because if, if for nothing else, it makes people throw up their hands and say, well, what the heck, you know. I, if everything is bad, I can't exist that way, therefore I'm going to do nothing. And I right. think that that's part of my concern is that, is that if people get overwhelmed and just say, and they give up. Uh, and I don't want that to happen. I think that there are some specific things that we can do that, that, that do make sense. Um, and you've suggested a, a number of them, uh, you know, a number of them here. And 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 I like your suggestion in particular of pick one thing, habituate it. You know, just do it until that one. And except and, right. and, and incorporate it if it's more expensive, incorporate it into your budget. So all of a sudden, you know, you're expecting to pay you know X amount on milk uh, or you know or organic uh, meat. So you, right, and and you cut back in other things, and then shift to do something else.
2: Yeah, I, right. And I just um and that's why when we make recommendations, we we know that people want to have things that they do in their their personal daily lives that they can control and we make recommendations in our materials for that and we have a handout on that on our website. We also recommend that people get involved because we're not going to change the only way that we can change the policies in the United States that govern how these things get to the marketplace is by uh being involved and and I mean look asking well making yeah. the government respond to our
1: concerns. So Well and, and that's a great segue. True. Let me give your website because I uh, we have come to the end of our hour and I want to make sure I give your website out. Uh and Dr. Woodruff just mentioned that we are she is getting ready, or not she, but they are getting ready to upgrade the website within uh so go to it today and look at it and then go back in a couple of weeks or next month and uh and see the improvements. The website is P-R-H-E, and that stands for Program on Reproductive Health and Environment. So P-R-H-E dot U-C-S-F, which stands for UC San Francisco, dot E-D-U. Again, P-R-H-E dot U-C-S-F dot E-D-U. And that will take you to the website, and there is a tab for getting involved, which will tell you things that you can do to help change the basic policies that make us paranoid about buying products um, that, that we use in everyday life. I assume that the handout you're talking about is the one that's titled Toxic Matters? Yes. Okay, yes. and so you can under Learn More, that's another uh, uh, tab at the top of their site, you can then click on Toxic Matters, and it's both in English and Spanish, uh, and you can, um, uh, and it gives uh, very specific uh, examples of what you can do to uh, address the, uh, in your everyday life uh, practical examples. So thank you so much, Dr. Tracy Woodruff, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Next week's show, March 25th, is going to be How to Predict Success with Fertility Treatment. Uh, To stay in touch with the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as to receive the upcoming week's blog and show topic, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter on any page at our website on the left-hand side, creatingafamily.org. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week.
0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back.